Welcome to the Give Yourself the Chat podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lewis, and this is the show dedicated to unlocking human potential and living a life of high performance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, Give Yourself the Chat podcast. Uh, this episode, I'm delighted to have a gentleman called Donald Robertson with me, who currently is, uh, I think you're sat in there in, in, in beautiful Athens, Donald. Very good morning to you. How are you? I'm in Athens. You know, normally, I joke, if I break into a sweat, it's not the stress. It's, you know, it's, it's been pretty warm here. It's not too bad today, but it was uh, 36 degrees centigrade yesterday, so I was kind of sweating a little bit. I went to, here's a little bit of news, where I went yesterday, for the first time I went to a place called Elefsina, um, which was is the site of ancient Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries, and uh, I went to the Temple of Hades, so I literally went to hell and back yesterday, yeah. they have a, <laughs> there's a cave which they have a little sh- in ruined shrine outside, which they, they believe was a temple to Hades, which I didn't know was there, I stumbled across it. So it it's amazing. Lot, it's amazing what you stumble across. We were only talking about yeah. off air, weren't we? How you can literally—you're tripping over history in yeah. cities like Athens and Rome and everything else. And you know, we're, we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, very, a lot of things, amongst others, your book, "How to Think Like a Roman Emperor," um, our mutual admiration and love of study of Stoicism, and, and other bits and pieces. We'll see where the conversation goes. I know it's going to be fascinating. But um, we're, we're still in pandemic, so we'll kind of timestamp this podcast. We're about sort of five or six months into pandemic. Um, I guess what, 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 a, what a time to be alive as, as a Stoic, I guess. What a time to practice this philosophy. Yeah, the, I'll give you some insider information about Stoicism. Like at first, actually, I think my publisher thought that the book sales might, for some reason they were a bit worried about book sales during the pandemic, but books on Stoicism we now know have shot through the roof yeah. Like since the start of the pandemic. You know, in retrospect, everything seems obvious, right? Think, oh, yeah, sure, that was bound to happen. But I remember people being worried the opposite would happen. And, uh, yeah, I've been doing more podcasts and, and webinars about stoicism than, than ever before. So there's been any. We thought stoicism had been climbing and climbing in popularity. And we thought it's going to, have we reached peak stoicism? You know, mm. we thought it would kind of plateau eventually. But then the pandemic has made people much more interested in the subject and just as a kind of aside you know actually you know what to sum up the best way of explaining that is that Marcus Aurelius the most famous uh, stoic of antiquity lived through a period called the Antonine Plague Mm. where they had a pandemic in Rome and maybe this is stretching things a tiny bit but he wrote his book the meditations in the middle of that pandemic and to some extent I would I would put it forward that you can view that book as, among other things, a psychological manual for coping with the challenges of living through a pandemic. And so that's one reason, among many, why people find it particularly resonates with them at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. But why do you think it was on the ascendancy pre-pandemic? I mean, it's certainly um, something... Gosh, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Like, I mean, okay, my personal reason, first of all, is that in the field of psychotherapy, we had this thing called the cognitive revolution, where in the 1950s, psychotherapists, cut long story short, realized that our thoughts and our beliefs were crucial to understanding our emotions. 
And they immediately spotted that the Stoics had already said that two and a half thousand years earlier. So they started to quote the Stoics. Every cognitive therapist quoted to the students and the clients Epictetus, one of the famous Roman Stoics, saying, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. Mm. And that saying perfectly encapsulates what we call the cognitive theory of emotion, which is the central theoretical premise of CBT. So the CBT then gradually became the dominant evidence-based approach to psychotherapy. And that gave Stoicism a huge validation. And uh, all these references to Stoicism started appearing, but it also meant people could say Stoicism seems to work because CBT definitely works. Yeah. Like, and, and Stoicism is based on the same premise. So it validated it, and that led to the self-help industry becoming more and more interested in Stoicism. That's my view of what happens. But I'll tell you what people say to me, because I've spoken, I've been involved with Stoicism now for nearly 25 years, and uh, I'm involved with this non-profit organization that runs events every year, thousands of people take part in. So I talk to people constantly, talk to thousands of people and this is what they say to me i'll just echo their words they tell me that they're into stoicism because they see it as a western alternative to buddhism mm. so it's kind of like buddhism in their eyes they call it western yoga but it's more consistent with our cultural values and norms they see it as a secular alternative to christianity Historically, Stoicism was one of the main influences in early Christianity. So it gives them this worldview, uh, the idea of ethical cosmopolitanism and the brotherhood of man and things like that come from Stoicism. But it's based on philosophical reasoning rather than revelation, faith or tradition, like religions usually are. They see it as like academic philosophy, but much more practical and down to earth. Right. So people that are into philosophy, well, this is what I was looking for. It's more practical. They see it like cognitive therapy, but it's more of a philosophy of life. So it's bigger and deeper in scope than CBT. CBT is time limited. It's a bunch yeah. of strategies and techniques. Like stoicism goes far beyond that. It's a permanent way of looking at things. So those are some of the things that they tell me that have in our culture drawn people towards stoicism. It, it's interesting. It just didn't you kind of describing that you probably encapsulated my own journey to stoicism um and and and, it, and it's interesting how as i explained to you I, I served for 20 years in the british army and i think i was introduced to stoicism or the, the language of or the, the philosophy around it through ryan holiday's work you know the daily stoic and and and, and everything else like that so uh, but, but it was interesting how when i was engaging with it initially it was like well this all sounds like what i've been doing for 20 well, the last 20 years in the military and uh -huh. And, and, and really, it was a case of now it's providing a language and a framework to reflect on everything that I was doing. So the, the, the parallels through, um, through my experience in the military and stoicism are really quite strong. And therefore, the attraction and going deeper into it has kind of pulled me in, if you like. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, this whole thing about there's like a bunch of people that haven't kind of coalesced yet, but we, we keep meeting people involved with the military that are interested in stoicism like from um, all sorts of different military backgrounds and the, there are many connections stoicism itself historically we could talk all day about the subject by the way but historically stoicism has always right from the outset has been connected with the military i'll tell you the obscure starting point for it socrates is the granddaddy of stoicism like the Stoics viewed themselves as a Socratic sect. And that's very obvious if you read Epictetus. 
because he goes on and on about Socrates and he repeatedly tells his students that they should emulate Socrates first and foremost as their role model. Socrates um, were served in at least three major battles in the Peloponnesian War. He, he was a hoplite, like uh, uh, an Athenian uh, infantryman. And he, I, I believe there's evidence that suggests Socrates was to some extent famous as a, a military hero. Perhaps even as early in his career, he may even have been better known as a military veteran than he was as a philosopher. Um, he certainly he was famous for both. He was a decorated military hero, he, or nearly decorated. He refused to uh, he turned down the, the award um, for valor that he'd earned. And he, he saved the lives of two officers in battle, in separate battles. Um, so his story was interwoven with the military, and then that influenced the whole tradition all the way down to uh, Marcus Aurelius, like over 500 years later, incidentally. So we're talking about a huge time span. Marcus Aurelius was not a soldier. Notably, like most, um, many Roman emperors were generals. And it's possible that at a certain point in the Senate thought, we're better off not having a general as commander-in-chief because we want to stabilize the empire. We want to stop these wars of expansion. Like We need to focus on the bureaucracy. Um, if we appoint a, a general emperor, he's just going to start waging more wars and stuff like that. And we, we want a bit of a change. So Marcus never served in the military. He was a bureaucrat at Rome. But then the empire was invaded by the Parthians, or they invaded the client state, they invaded Armenia, triggered a war in the east. And uh, and then the, the Marcomanni and a bunch of other northern tribes invaded across the Danube. And Marcus had no choice but then to take command, uh, operational command of the, the Roman army. <clears throat> he went to the front line, uh, the Danube, and took command of 140,000 men the largest army that had ever been massed on a Roman frontier. So we start with the story of Socrates, and then we end up with a story of Marcus Aurelius writing the meditations. And again, I said it's a coping strategy for dealing with the pandemic. You can also see the meditations, which was written in a legionary fortress um, as a, a Marcus's attempt to cope with this uh, military crisis that he found himself in the middle of. That's interesting, isn't it? And now, so being an ex-military man myself, understanding that Marcus wasn't a soldier first and foremost, but later on in his life, taking command of the armies, soldiers are notoriously um, difficult to win over if you haven't had a, a, a military career, not one of ours. How, how did Marcus do that in your, in your understanding of his life? So we have these little hints that the, the, the generals under his, some of the generals under his command thought, they called him, one of the, the guy that had the civil war with him, Avidius Cassius, allegedly called him a philosophical old woman. He <laughs> thought that he was too much of a military dove. Like uh, Cassius, um, who, who led this opposition faction, really, and started the civil war, was much more notorious as a, a brutal, a violent general. He was much more hawkish. Um, and, you know, so I, it does seem like initially they probably thought Marcus was like a fish out of water and he was very sickly. They, they also kind of thought he just didn't look the type. They wanted kind of um, more confident, athletic, charismatic leader for the military and they'd lined up his 
adoptive brother, Lucius Verus, to fill that role. The military mm. loved him. Like, you know, he was uh, much more a man of the people. Um, I, he, he doesn't seem to have served in the military, but somehow he kind of resonated with them more. But then he died of the plague. Boom. And so Marcus had to step into his shoes, and they thought, oh, we've got the nerdy brother, right, <laughs> who's always coughing up blood and looks like he's going to die at any minute. Like, and this guy is just has his nose stuck in books all the time. He's never been out of Rome. Everything about it just seemed like, you know, he's this is the worst guy to take command of this huge army in the middle of a crisis. And what we know, I would say the piece of evidence I would point to as a couple of things, but by the end of the First Marcomannic War, um, like seven or eight years later, the, the Roman army, are the legions are attributing several battlefield miracles to Marcus, and they are now demonstrating this intense loyalty to him. And he seems to have kind of gone from zero to hero in their eyes. I mean, I think it helps that he was winning. That made him more popular. Um, but then the civil war is kind of a test and you know do they switch sides like do the armies that are kind of in Turkey and Cappadocia like I think there was a risk that they would go over to the other side but they didn't they remained loyal to Marcus um, and so I think he won them over somehow um, they started to, to celebrate him as a, as a general uh, very much so um, maybe it was part, it could partly be and this is a tricky one, but maybe there's a hint that it was because he was good at giving speeches that that also helped. That was very important to the Roman legions. Um, so they were like, oh, he writes all these boring letters. and things. But then he also gave some quite profound speeches. And I mean, the shocking thing is Cassius Dio reports one of his speeches to the legions. And uh, what he says to them is, is utterly remarkable. And it, it, it's, it's strange. It seems like it would probably have shocked them because he, say, he stands up and he says that he's pardoning everybody involved in the civil war against him. Um, and not only is that shocking, um, the, the news of the civil war reached the Senate in Rome first and they did the opposite and declared the usurper a public enemy um, and uh, seized his assets, so they escalated things. And then it would have taken maybe about two or three weeks for the information to reach Marcus. Um, uh, he would have been in Serbia uh, at the time. And uh, he does the opposite, he overturns all of this, he says, I'm going to pardon them all, yeah. which worked, actually, because then the, uh, the legions fighting against him lost the will to fight. They thought, why are we even fighting this more if he's going to let us all off the hook for it now anyway? Like, you know, it's kind of starting to look dangerous. And uh, they assassinated their general um, rather than continue the war. So he managed to defuse the whole thing without actually having to come to blows. And he did it by forgiving them, paradoxically. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating character. And, and, and the more you kind of uh, research and read into him, you think, wow, you know, it's, it, it's amazing how enduring his, his philosophy or his approach to philosophy or just approach to his own management of his own mind but management of his men and, 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 and people around him. There's a, I don't know if you can see on my wall there, but there's a, a framed quote, um, you'll be familiar with it, you know, waste, waste no more time arguing what a good man should be, just get on and be one. 
Um, so I think so much of that, and linking it back to a soldier likes nothing more than just to see and be confident in their leader by, by their deeds and their actions, not necessarily the rhetoric that they're using. Mm -hmm. I think so much of that would have played out. Um, I think that probably shaped things. And that's also that we should say, just in terms of, for one of a better way of putting it, the language, or you could even say the rhetoric of ancient philosophy is steeped in this military uh, symbolism. Hmm. Um, and uh, actually the famous precedent for that is in Plato's Apology, a seismic historical event where Socrates stands up in court and you know he, he ends up being executed. But his defence turns on a lot of references to his military career, and he describes himself metaphorically as being like a like a soldier uh, in his defence of philosophy, and he's willing to risk his life facing execution. He said, "I risked my life in battle for Athens many times just to save my nation, and now I'm standing here defending." the truth itself and you guys are surprised that I'm willing to risk my life in doing that but this is actually much more important to me and you thought it would be dishonorable for me to flee from the battlefield the most shocking thing ever and yet you're suggesting that I should do the same thing now when I'm faced with uh, these people challenging me in court so this is his argument for refusing to back down like he said that it would be you know like I, I didn't back down when I was in the army, so why should I back down now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When this is even more important to me, and uh, the, these me like the metaphors of uh, soldiering and all sorts of military metaphors run all the way down. When philosophers describe their ideas, they usually have to use imagery and metaphors to do it. And sometimes those are metaphors about the Olympics and athleticism. Sometimes they're metaphors about medicine being a physician, but often they're military metaphors. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, sort of sport and everything else like this, and, and, and previously there's lots of sort of subsets of, of people and groups interested in stoicism, and yet they're to coalesce. Um, <clears throat> what other areas are you seeing sort of stoicism being practiced and really kind of in, taken on board? Well, when we started, right, <clears throat> so stoicism is ancient philosophy. So the first thing that we take for granted now maybe but when i started doing it, everyone thought this was really weird so a bunch of psychotherapists myself included were like oh we're into stoicism now and uh at first the classicists were like why are all these psychotherapists coming along and stealing our thing like you know you're not you're not philosophers you're not classicists so you know like now that's normal like yeah. at first people thought it was weird so that we take that for granted now psychologists and psychotherapists were the first bunch and then we close to that with the life coaches obviously and then that kind of sort of uh, overlaps with corporate training so there's a bunch of people that weren't really doing clinical therapy but were working with corporate clients and then the kind of success coaches and stuff so then you have tim ferris and ryan holiday guys like that who appeal more to the silicon valley types and mm. what's sometimes called the success literature that aspect of self-improvement um you know so stoicism kind of expanded into that and then there were, like i say there were baseball coaches uh basketball coaches football coaches that get into stoicism so all the kind of people that are into sports athletes talking about it and then you know a smaller niche is maybe people that work in prisons there's a book by a guy who's a social worker in prison you know if you're in prison and you're looking for a way to deal with that situation wrap your, your head around it um, work on your own character, deal with the challenges you're facing, and stoicism is a perfect philosophy for that. 
and uh, and then we you know we have the military and maybe it's worth saying a little bit more about some of the connect you know in modern times one of the the, the most loved books about stoicism is thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot by james stockdale okay. um who's a vice admiral in the u.s navy he was also got involved in u.s politics but that didn't go so well for him he was a, a vice presidential candidate uh, in the U.S. at one point, but he was uh, shot down over Vietnam mm-hmm. at the beginning of the Vietnam War and uh, captured and taken to this place called the Hanoi Hilton, where he was tortured really badly um, until eventually he was freed at the end of the war and he was kept in solitary for years. And he had he had read the Stoics and used the Stoics to cope. So this is another kind of reason. Um, there are a bunch of reasons why people involved in the military have the ancient literature and also modern literature. Like, I think we're reaching the point, like with some of these subgroups where we need to kind of, we create communities for them and join all of these dots. Um, we haven't started doing that really for the guys that are into sports. You know, there's many ways that we could weave all that together and point them at certain literature and stuff. But for the military, we've kind of started to do that. Um, I wrote an article about Stoicism in the military not long ago that tries to kind of say, here's all the ways in which ancient Stoicism was connected to the military, all the ancient Stoics that actually served in the military, and here are some of the modern books. So Nancy Sherman um, was a professor at the US Naval College, and she wrote a book about Stoicism in the military as well, for example. So it's just putting all these references together, like in the, in the kind of making the connections for people to try and give this emerging community really like a, a bit of a boost yeah and, and i think just to explore that uh, whilst i haven't perhaps read any uh, as many of those texts i'm certainly will do as a result of our chat today but for me the, the the sort of parallels and connections were very much around that sort of code that you subscribe to yeah um and the, almost that sort of love and dedication to your fellow man you know because you know, a soldier doesn't fight for an ideal. It's it's it, he fights for the person next to him, and and there's yeah. that sort of strong code. There's that sort of self of selflessness and and service to others and putting others before self. But equally, there's this sort of more pragmatic element of okay, shit's happened. What do I do uh-huh. now? Rather than yeah. looking around for somebody to blame, you just get on with it. <laughs> well, let's let's poke around and dig a little bit into why uh, there's a connection with the, the military in terms of the concepts like you're saying. And you haven't mentioned death, right? No. Which is, I think, is probably must be also be another factor. And to tie a couple of things together, one of the reasons that during the pandemic, I think people are becoming more interested in stoicism is because it's uh, forced them to uh, engage in uh, memento mori mm. practices to come to terms with their own mortality to, to think shit maybe i'm gonna die you know or it's a possibility i mean we were always maybe gonna die you know in fact yeah, we're always yeah. certainly gonna die yeah, uh, certainly, yeah. but um for some reason of like events like this i say to people and i don't mean like this i i think that the pandemic has been generally trivialize i have an interest in health research and in public health and i think anyone involved in public health will tell you that politicians like need to keep out of this like because they've turned it into political football and it's led to the trivialization in many ways of like a, a serious health crisis i don't know anyone that works in health um or certainly in health research 
um, that doesn't think that the public have been led a merry dance mm. um, by politicians and social media spreading misinformation, um, which is shocking. Like public health is all about spreading accurate and helpful information. So nevertheless, uh, every one of us is far more likely to die of something else than COVID-19. Right? That's the truth. It's a terrible thing, but you, truth is you're more likely to may end up uh, dying of, of something else, cancer or heart attack or something like that, eventually, statistically. But, you know, the fact that we're living through this just means that we're talking about it and thinking about it, and people are confronting their own mortality. And I think anyone that serves in the military has to confront risk like, and has to come to terms with their own mortality. I, mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Socrates served in these wars um, risking him, putting himself in very dangerous situations. Um, and then a big part of his philosophy, he says, is this preparation for death and coming to terms with the concept of his own mortality. But you also mentioned this idea of a kind of a code of honour, or what we call a virtue ethic, mm. which is really central to Stoicism. And I know that many of the people in the military that I've spoken to have said that that's one of the things that really resonates with them. Um, and like you say, this kind of sense of community as well and your connectedness with your, your fellow man, like these are other important elements that I think uh, appeal to people that have said, if, you know, they, I'm told anyway, I've heard this again and again from people in the military, um, yeah. that it's the, the idea of honour and stoicism uh, it seems to be one of the things that keeps coming up. But, but, but there's also the fact that there is no point. You're never allowed to really complain among in the barrack room. You know, if you're whinging and whining, somebody will just yeah. tell you to shut the what up and just get on with it. And there is this very sort of just, okay, fine, yeah. But I, 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 I can't allow myself to feel sorry for myself. You know, I have to give myself the chat. And and you know, hence the so much of this podcast is around what what I try and do with with my clients in my leadership programs, my coaching is is okay. So what? What next? And I, and I think that's a strong appeal and a strong link to it, purely because you're not really allowed to dwell on those things. Yeah. You can only dwell on what we do right now because things are moving at such a, an operational pace. That the moment you start to, to sort of feel sorry for yourself, well, that 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 could cost lives. Ultimately, the ultimate manifestation of that of that delay and feeling sorry for yourself is, is loss of life. Um, yeah, and it's interesting yeah. though. The the, the the sorry, but the subject of death really yeah. for the average soldier. I mean, I can't speak for all soldiers, but quite often that's just sort of parked, and it's like, well, let's not uh -huh. worry about that, and and yet. Memento Mori is, all of us should be more conscious of that because every right. second that passes belongs to death. So how do you make the most of right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe, I, I don't know. I wonder if it's different if you're an ancient hoplite or a legionary, like in, uh, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in ancient warfare, perhaps. But I think in ancient society in general, death was more imminent, yeah. um, you know, because people are maybe slaughtering their own uh, foot, like, uh, animals for food and making animal sacrifices for their religions and things like you know and, and seeing dying relatives and things like that you know like death was, was much more visible in society um, and also the plague that affected Marcus was far more visible like one of the things about COVID is unless you watch videos the few that come out broadcast from uh, people that are uh, working in the front line in hospitals you 
we are quite detached from yes. um, what COVID treatment looks like and the, the chaos, the carnage um, that's going on. But the uh, the the Antonine plague, people were dying in the streets, you know, like um, they were losing limbs and their, their faces were covered in sores and things like that. So it was a much more visible thing to everybody. Um, yeah, like I. I I, I, see, I can see a bunch of reasons why people in the military might be. And also, the, I feel like a lot of the people that I've spoken to, certainly when I went to the Marine Corps, um, the kind of historical aspect, mm. uh, I don't know what, exactly why that is, but they, you know, obviously a lot of the people that I've spoken to, um, you know, particularly the officers that I've spoken to, had an interest in military history and military, you know, uh, military strategy and ancient warfare. Um, and that's so that, you know, they'll be talking to me about the Roman legions and stuff. And then also talking, I've talked about Alexander the Great and things. And that kind of all ties into that they're interested in Stoicism and Socrates. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as a commissioned officer myself, part of our, our training was, you know, a whole year of, of sort of studies, doctrinal studies, but also studies from history. And, and whilst we perhaps majored on uh, Klaus Fitz and, and Sun Tzu and, and uh -huh. principles like that, I can see the, 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 the interest and the extension to those things. So a, a, a lot of them are, there are a lot of parallels kind of from all of those. Um, so tell me, tell me about the book. What, what was the motivation to kind of bring all this, this passion for this philosophy and, and bring it in, into, into a book now? Well, this is, the, this is my sixth book. And uh, I was asked by a publisher, I guess Stoicism was, there were a lot of books appearing in Stoicism and I've been doing this for a while. So um, a publisher asked me to write a, a book on Stoicism and they said, what we need is a kind of introduction to Stoicism. I mean, that's what we think there's a market for at the moment. <clears throat> and I said, well, I've already written books like that. And there are loads of other books like that. So uh, I like to think, is there a way, is there a yes and no answer to this? Is there a way I can do it, but still do something different? So I thought, well, let's maybe do an introduction, but we'll do it from a very different angle. And I thought the way to do that is to focus on the example of a, a, a real historical Stoic. So I thought about Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. We've got some cool stories about him, but not really enough for a whole book. And then I thought, if only there was like a famous Stoic who was like a big deal back in his day and about whom there was uh, there were histories and archaeological evidence. And I thought, well, rather than looking at the first famous Stoic, I should look at the last famous Stoic of antiquity, Marcus Aurelius. And I, I, just as a, a little note about that, I mean, when I wrote that book, there were people, a couple of people who reviewed it and said, well, this is good, but Donald's made up all these stories. Or somebody recently reviewed it and they described it as a novel. And I think, you know, they, they, they hadn't seen the footnotes or like the, the introduction um, because everything that's in there is based on the surviving historical documents that we have. So we have Cassius Dio, Herodian, Historia Augusta. And basically we know far more about the life and the reign and the character of Marcus Aurelius than I think most people realize. In addition to that, we also have a cache of private letters between him and one of his family friends. Mm. Uh, it's a, a very important historical source. So we, we've got a lot, and there are many biographies of Marcus Aurelius as well, modern biographies. Um, so that, I thought, someone, people don't realize how much we know about him, and a, a good way of approaching this would be to write an introduction that talks about his character and 
examples from his from his life. Um, and that's one of the main reasons that I, I wrote How to Think of the Roman Emperor. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I enjoy sort of meditations and, and, and Marcus. I think there's, there's so many little things that sort of help me day to day. So probably, like I said, I, don't, I, I suspect that you probably have a, your, your morning routine like a lot of us do. And, and I use journaling as a, as a means of, of sort of helping me sort of set up with the day in that sort of classic stoic sense of your, your morning reflections and your evening sort of comparisons and everything else like this. Um, but I often just put in there a little bit of, um, you know, what would Marcus do? question and I know that features uh, in, in your book as well and that I think that just there's so many little practical examples of of what he meditated on that you can use in your day-to-day -day. but what for you sort of stands out as some of the practical elements that perhaps you use in your life that that appear in in Marcus's reflections when I wrote my first book on Stoicism I described all the parallels between Stoic philosophy and modern psychotherapy and there are many of them and actually I never numbered them so I went back when I was doing the revised edition of that. And I thought, how many are there? Well, there are 18, right? So it's a lot of techniques. Um, and so then that raises the question, are some of them more fundamental than others? Actually, it's a little bit hard to pin down which ones you'd pick out if you're going to kind of prioritize some. But I think the most important psychological technique in stoicism is the one that I call cognitive distancing, because that's the term that we would use for it in modern psychotherapy. There isn't really an ancient name for it. And it's summed up in the Epictetus quote, fam the most famous one, it says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. So it's a little bit of a, a psychological knack. It's notoriously hard to explain, <clears throat> but to do it, it's very simple. And there's a, a large body of modern recent research that shows this is a far more powerful, powerful psychological technique than people had assumed before. And so it consists in the ability of separating, Marcus refers to it as separating our thoughts from external events, particularly our value judgments. So I could say um, that guy's tall or he's got red hair um, or I could say he's a, an asshole or an idiot, right? And the far, they, these all sound like they're just descriptions of fact that are on all fours with each other. But the first two are descriptions of physical properties like, and the other ones are really value judgments that I'm imposing. And because of the way we think, the way we use language, we tend to fuse our value judgments with external events as if we're just describing objective facts. And the Stoics want us to undo that and to realize that when I say someone's a jerk or an idiot or say a situation's a catastrophe, <clears throat> I'm not describing the event objectively anymore. I'm projecting a value judgment onto it. And the Stoics want us just to take ownership for those value judgments and realize they're coming from inside us rather than being a description of external events. And that sounds like a simple thing, but it tends to moderate our emotional response. And it also increases cognitive flexibility. It makes us more adaptive. So it's a very powerful psychological technique. But mm. to do it consistently, you'd have to practice a kind of self-awareness or mindfulness. So the Stoics want us to continually practice what they call prosoki, <clears throat> which is the Greek word for attention. So they want us to continually pay attention to the value judgments that we make throughout the day. So this kind of mindfulness of our value judgments to me really is the backbone of Stoic practice. Just as a bit of trivia, we started off talking about Athens. Everywhere you go in Athens, you see signs that say prosoki because it's the word that they use today that means uh, war 
running or attention or danger. So if you get on the underground train, instead of mind the gap, it will say prosoke, like uh, pay attention. Uh, if someone has a guard dog, they'll have a picture of an Alsatian or whatever, and it'll say prosoke, like yeah. beware of the dog underneath it. So this watch out, beware, is the word that ancient Stoics used for kind of practice of mindfulness. Beware. The way that Epictetus describes it, philosophers used to go barefoot. There's a famous play about Socrates called Barefoot in Athens. And he said, in the same way that if you're walking a bit barefoot, you'd be careful that you don't tread on a sharp object. Mm. Epictetus says you should be also think about you, your, the way you're using your mind in the same way that you're using your feet, um, because it, it's much more serious if you harm your character. Like, by um, placing your, your value judgments uh, on things that, that might be dangerous or harmful for your moral character. So in the same way that you're walking barefoot, you should you know, uh, pay attention to your, your footsteps. You should be uh, continually aware, prosoke, pay attention to the way that you're using your mind. Yeah, that, that, and that's interesting because uh, a lot of the leadership programs that I run, they all, I start them all by this sort of reflective piece uh, and know, that know thyself element for, for leaders to really understand their own mind and, and to really develop a reflective practice. And, and quite often when we start out, it's like, well, no, 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 when can we get onto the good stuff where I can really learn how to be a great leader? And I said, well, no, 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 this is the good stuff. And I think so many people miss that point is that actually, you know, to become a better leader, to become a better a friend or whatever, so much of it is grounded in just get on and be that good person, um, but but develop that yourself. That's that's really interesting. I um, think that's one of the things that appeals to people about stoicism in general. Like, um, you know, like a really simple, a very general way of explaining it is that throughout human history, disciplines have been divided further and further. And in ancient philosophy, there was no real distinction between politics and ethics. Or, leader, or leadership and ethics, they were the same subject, um, just different aspects of it. And Machiavelli was the person most renowned for forcefully arguing that ethics and politics should be completely separated. Right. Um, and many people would say that had a baneful influence on, on modern society and our conceptions of, of leadership and politics. It's all about expediency, rather than actually being the sort of person that deserves to be a leader. Yeah. And so in the ancient world, they said, well, being a leader is about just improving your character and being somebody, you know, virtuous, somebody wise, self-disciplined, um, you know, courageous, um, someone fair, like just, um, you know, it's about developing the sort of character that we would want to, to find in a, a leader. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree. Um, so we're, we're kind of coming to our time, Donald. It's been fascinating talking uh, with you. But um, if obviously if somebody wants to explore stoicism further, then yeah, look no further than grabbing your book, perhaps. But but for those that are just sort of coming into stoicism, what would you advise um, to, to get the most out of this philosophy, would you say? Um, I think the, one of the things that's driven the modern interest, this isn't everyone's cup of tea, but for many people, it's the online communities changed everything. There was a, what I call a Stoic diaspora, right? There were Stoics all over the world, um, but they didn't talk to one another. Like, strangely, they just, no one, everyone was reading the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, but people didn't group together and talk about how they were reading the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. 
And now there are Facebook communities, you know, there's other, there's Reddit's a big community. And so kind of for some people getting engaged with these communities, simply because then they'll learn what books other people are reading Mm. and they'll learn what podcasts other people are listening to and they'll learn what practices other people are engaged in. And then the other thing is we have this non-profit organization that does all of these things for people. It's called Modern Stoicism and it was founded in 2012 by Christopher Gill, his professor emeritus of ancient thought at the University of Exeter and has written about Marcus Aurelius. He's, a, he's an expert on ancient history and the that organization I'm one of the founding members of is run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers including some well-known authors in the field of Stoicism. So our chair is currently John Sellers, who's a professor of philosophy uh, in the UK, and he's a well-known author in Stoicism. <clears throat> and they run a, a, a huge blog that's got over 600 articles from people all around the world, including some people writing about Stoicism in the military um, from, from different backgrounds in the UK and America. And uh, so people can look at the blog articles. There's also a podcast for modern stoicism. We have the Stoic Week event that we run every year. And this is leading me to a plug, I guess. Accidentally, I don't know. This wasn't planned. No, no, no. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, for the modern stoicism conference, which the pandemic had uh, put the kibosh on, because it was going to be in Toronto. We usually have it in a a city uh, every year. And people travel to it. We had it in Athens two years ago, which was awesome. So we got to show everybody the Agora and the Acropolis and stuff. Amazing. So this year we have to have a virtual conference. There's been a lot of upheaval in that, but we just announced that. So And it's almost free. It's uh, tickets by donation. And so people just choose however much they want to pay, like, which is good. So if somebody's a student or whatever, they don't have to pay very yeah. much. And uh, so anyone can enroll for that. We've got hundreds of people already enrolled for it. And that's happening on the 17th of October. And we've got like about over a dozen speakers, most of whom are are well-known authors in the field of Stoicism. So if you go to the modernstoicism.com website, you'll find out about Stoicon, Stoic Week, you know, uh, the Stoicism Today blog, all of the other things that that organization does. That, that sounds amazing. I, I'm certainly going to check that out and uh, and, and uh, look forward to attending that in October. Donald, it's been an absolute pleasure having a, a chat with you. Um, no doubt um, we'll have you back on down the road. Um, enjoy Athens uh, and, and and your time there. But just want to thank you very much for sort of broadly my understanding of stoicism and, and, and also sort of paving the way with the work that you do. So thank you so much for being on the show. As ever, I really enjoyed chatting to Donald there on this episode, and in particular, exploring a philosophy which I'm increasingly engaged with in that of Stoicism. Um, But if this was your first foray or uh, introduction to Stoicism, then um, uh, welcome. Um, It's a philosophy which can really positively affect your life, and it's, it's grounded in taking action. Uh, It's very much a philosophy that is applied through doing. Um, So I really do encourage you to read further into the subject and hopefully this episode has whetted the appetite. Uh, What better place to start than with Donald's book though? How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius and check out modernstoicism.com as well uh, and any of the resources they have on that website and also Stoicon which is a virtual event here in 2020 um, but is on every year. So... um, Welcome to, to, to the fascinating 
uh, insightful and applicable philosophy for stoicism, not only in pandemic, but uh, life beyond there. If you'd like to connect with me and chat some more, uh, peterlewiscoaching.com is the place to do that. Feel free to drop me a line, um, suggest who you'd like to, ha- to hear on this podcast, but also some of the subjects that you'd like me to, to engage with. But for the meantime, thank you so much for being one of my listeners, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one.